The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. You will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Crystal. Well, good morning. Um, we are in the middle of a sermon series in uh, Romans 8, entitled Sanity by the Savior. And there's two reasons for that, too. If we zoom out, we see um, what does Easter mean? At sh- the street level, why, what's, what's the big deal about the empty tomb? What does it mean for the life of someone who says, I am Jesus's and Jesus is mine? And so because of that, we go to the best chapter, chapter of the Bible, um, Romans 8 and see that. But also, if we kind of zoom in a little more, what happens right before Romans 8 is Romans 7. And in Romans 7, Paul says, I'm a walking contradiction. I can't make sense of myself. What I should do, I don't do. What I don't do, I should do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death, he says. And then Romans 8 starts. And so because of that, we say there's sanity by the Savior. Jesus recalibrates us. He, he sets everything right, and he speaks meaning and purpose because of his empty tomb. And so that's kind of the overview of why we're in this and what we're aiming at. And uh, one thing that we're going to talk about this morning is the sanity and belonging. Sanity and belonging. As we look at this section of Romans 8, and like every Sunday, but certainly this Sunday, I'm here to tell you I cannot convince you of your belonging. I'm here to tell you about it and, and, and communicate what God's word says, but, but I can't convince you that you are God's. I can't convince you that, uh, that you are a son, that you're a daughter. But the Holy Spirit can. And that's actually what he does best. And so I, I say I can't convince you because I'm, your job this morning is not to listen to me so much as what is the Holy Spirit telling you in all of this? It is the best news and the best chapter, but what is being pricked in your heart and, and risen up in your heart, bubbling to the surface, that maybe is speaking to a deeper story that God is inviting us into. And so this morning, as we look at the, the sanity and belonging, we'll see two points, uh, two points, the, the insanity of fear, and then second, the sanity of belonging, the insanity of fear and the sanity of belonging. Uh, because all of us, like we just sang, and we'll hear about later in Luke 15, we all want to know there's a place for us at the table. That God wants us to be there. And he actually delights in us being there. And it's a joy of his for us to be there. Well, let's pray as we study God's word together and see what it has for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, as we talk about fear and being yours, I come as a person, and I don't think I'm alone, as someone who's just riddled by fear. 
and someone who really does not oftentimes think I'm worth anything. And so with these thoughts and others, as we walk into a room as a people who are um, thinking different things, believing different things, longing to believe things, longing to think things, would you meet us? Would you convince us that we are yours and show us the beautiful and believable story that Jesus is out of the tomb and that means something for us now? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, uh, first off, the sanity, or the insanity, excuse me, the insanity of fear, the insanity of fear. Last week, we talked about the Spirit. Romans 8 says the Spirit a lot, the word Spirit, and how the Spirit's job is to uh, be in you. It's the gift that God gives you because Jesus has gone. Jesus says, I need to go so that you can have the Spirit. It's a good thing I go so you get the Spirit. And the Spirit's job is this. He's supposed to be the guy with the headphones and the cardboard arrow on the street corner that flips it and tells you about the mattress sale that's going on down the street. That's the Spirit's job. The Spirit's job is to point you to Jesus, never to himself, but he's saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And he's applying everything Jesus has done for you to you and in you and about you. That's the Spirit's job, and he's really, really, really good at it. He's actually peerless in it. So that's the Spirit's job. Here we find ourselves, and Paul begins this next section by saying, you are debtors. Now, because he's saying that because uh, God has done all this for you, and he's given you his Spirit, because he's done these things, and because you have the Spirit, your life necessitates a reality. Not to earn God's favor, but because you have God's favor. Life necessitates a reality. To take yourself and your sin and the things in your world seriously. And he says this in verse 12 and on. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. God. He's saying, because you have the Spirit, you now belong to God. You're a son of God. And, and it's an inclusive language. It's, it's talking about male and female, men and women. You are sons of God. You belong. You belong. And then he goes on and he talks about something kind of one step further of what the rigor is in that belonging. And he says in verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So the spirit's job is to point to Jesus. And here we see the spirit's job also is to remind you, you are brought from far to near. You went from being, and I use the word very intentionally, and not uh, recklessly, you went from being an orphan to being adopted. And we're about to look at later on what that really means. But, but he's saying you go from having nothing to having everything, being no ones to being the ones. You are now a son and a daughter of the living God. You belong to him. You're adopted. And he goes on to say, it's so easy to go back to where you just were taken from. 
He's saying, yes, you're, you're a daughter and yes, you're a son of the king. But guess what? Just like the Israelites, as they left Egypt, as we heard about in January and February and March, they left Egypt and oftentimes the moniker and the saying was, can't we just go back to Egypt? Moses, have you brought us out here to die? Let's go back to Egypt. At least we could die next to the food they had for us and not starve in the desert. With that mindset and that model and that thing in mind, so it is with the spirit. And Paul says, don't go back to the spirit of slavery that pulls you in for, with fear, but press on as a son and a daughter. Press on because you belong. Don't go back in to fear. And he's saying, yes, slavery does promise you something. It gives you purpose. Darkness gives you something. It gives you purpose. But they're not beautiful ones. They're, more, they're, they're, they're devolving ones. Don't go back to fear because Paul knows of all people, fear drives everything. The driving force of fear, the horsepower behind it, we have to acknowledge. Because if we don't, we'll get real wonky real fast in the spiritual journey following Jesus. And you know fear. I know fear. For my our three-year-old daughter, Teddy, what she'll do is every couple days, she'll come up to my wife and I and she'll say, Daddy or Mommy, I'm a little nervous, which is her way of saying, I'm terrified. As a three-year-old, whether she can or she can't articulate it, she knows it. Right? Even as a young uh, little child, you know fear. We know fear. To be human is to know fear. It's to be marked by fear. And fear's job is not meant to spook you. It's not meant to scare you. It's not meant to threaten you. Fear's job is actually uh, there to isolate you. It's to pull you away. It's not there to scare you. It's there to pull you away. In a word, it's, fear's number one job is if I can just get them away from them feeling like they are gods, I will have done my job well. Fear wants to make you an orphan. And again, I use the word intentionally, not recklessly. Fear longs to make you a spiritual orphan. So what does that look like? That's fear's aim and their, its goal. What does it look like? And look no further than the 1992 Disney movie Newsies, where Christian Bale, Batman, is actually Batman's origin story. It's not <laughs> true. But uh, where Christian Bale is this 1920s uh, orphan, he is the leader of this group of these runaways and these orphans who live in a bunkhouse in, in this orphanage in New York City, and they sell uh, newspapers. Newsies, hint the name. And it's, you will have to shave your legs after you watch it because you're goosebumps the whole time. It is such a good movie. Go watch it. But um, in the movie, he, he's selling papers, and he's the, he's the ringleader of this crew, and there's this new person that joins their crew. And actually... They're this, this, this duo of brothers, they're not orphans. Their father's hurt, and so they are forced to go and sell papers and make some money for their family. And so they go, and actually this ringleader, Christian Bale, is brought into their family for dinner one night. And he sees what it's like to sit down at a family dinner and to be a part of a family and to be safe somewhere and to be fed and not have to be a beggar, not have to scrap for things. And as he, as he walks away from that dinner and he goes back to this bunkhouse, this orphanage, he begins to reflect of his daydream of, wow, 
It felt so good to belong there. Where would I find that very same feeling? And he begins to talk about, I'm going to feel that if I can get to my goal from not being in New York as a a newspaper-pushing little boy, but if I get to Santa Fe, New Mexico, life there will be grand and great. And he begins this song. And he reflects on the meal he had, and he said, So that's what they call a family, mother, daughter, father, son. Steve is a much better singer than I. He says, guess that everything you heard about is true. Uh, So you ain't got any family. Well, who said you needed one? Ain't you glad nobody's waiting up for you? He says, when I dream on my own, I'm alone. But I ain't lonely. For a dreamer's night's the only time of day. When the city's finally sleeping, all my thoughts begin to stray, and I'm on a train that's bound for Santa Fe. And I'm free like the wind, like I'm going to live forever. It's a feeling time can never take away. And all I need is a few more dollars, and I'm going to, and I'm out of here to stay. Dreams come true, yes they do, in Santa Fe. From this young teenage Christian bale, what do we know? Fear puts us in this labyrinth that we are called to live in as orphans. As people with no status, no power, no prestige, no strength, nothing to stand on. And because of that, the labyrinth fear puts us in only allows us to daydream. He has nothing. What does he do? He daydreams about the hope of Santa Fe. And what do we do when we have nothing? What do we do when we are uh, spiritual orphans and function as we have as no one's favor? We daydream. Because all we can do when we have nothing is daydream. Because all it is is just that, a dream. And you'll never get it. That fear loves to plop you down and not just oppress you, but allow you to be an orphan so that I can sit down and watch you squirm as you daydream. As you think to yourself, boy, I wish I had what I don't have because life would be so much better if I had that. Fear loves to watch us search for an inheritance and a security and affection that we don't have. And when we search for that security and affection and longing and safety, it's no wonder we, we brush up against some kind of resistance in it. And when we brush up the search for inheritance and favor and meaning, we're undone. And here's what I mean. A 20th century uh, priest named Henry Nouwen said this. He said, many of my daily Preoccupation suggests I belong more to the world than to God. A little criticism makes me angry, and a little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits, a little success excites me. It takes very little to raise me up or thrust me down. And often I'm like a small boat on the ocean, completely at the mercy of its waves. All the energy, all the time and energy I spend in keeping some kind of balance and preventing myself from being tipped over and drowning shows that my life is mostly a struggle for survival, not a holy struggle 
but an anxious struggle resulting from the mistaken idea that it is the world that defines me. And that's exactly where fear does its best work. When we begin to operate out of the last sentence that says, an anxious struggle resulting from the mistaken idea that it is the world that defines me. And Paul knows it, which is why he says, don't go back to slavery. Don't listen to the place that fear is drawing you into. Instead, you've been called as a son and a daughter, and you've been given the spirit that shows you just that. And and the, the insanity of fear is this, is that yes, it pulls you away. Yes, it oppresses you. Yes, it longs to orphan you. But the insanity of fear is that it gives you these false prescriptions to fix itself. Here's what I mean. Fear will tell you, hey, if you want to stop fearing, here's what you should do, because then you'll be this person. Fear doesn't just give you stuff. It reminds you you can be someone else. It's all to the end of being someone, not just having something. Right, if you just had a little more confidence, that would be the wind in your sails to be the guy, the girl. All you lack is confidence. If you just had more power, then you would be a person of importance. Because everyone else doesn't want you to have power. But if you had it, and you got the thing they don't want you to have, you would show them. That if you had anger, you would set them straight because for too long, people have looked down on you. And you're going to set them straight through the way that you inflict your fury upon them. Fear gives us these false prescriptions that says, yeah, you can fix fear by doing this, and then you'll be this. There's an exercise um, that we've done uh, a few times at the, at the men's retreat a few years ago. We did, and we'll do it again this fall. Shameless plug. This is the heaviest podium known to mankind. But in this... Uh, Exercise called the four chairs. Hi, Mitch. Uh, We get how many chairs? Four. So you get four chairs. And in those four chairs, uh, each chair has a prompt. And you talk. A person sits before a group of people and speaks of the prompts that each chair asks. And they move down the line. So in the first chair, this is the voice of, of God's mission for you. Why did God make you? Who has God made you to be? Because you are the only you. And God has made you to be somebody. And so for me, I'm this. I'm, I'm Ben. I'm, I'm, I'm called to lean into the fact and just, just rediscover over and over again, because it's so hard, that, that God really does love me. But actually, I am his. I, I have nothing that's off limits that's his. And I'm called to be a, a husband that uh, just delights in, in Charlotte. I'm called to be a father that every day my children get to hear from their father how crazy he is about, he is about them. These things and more. So who are you made to be? The second share, the prompt is this. The prompt is, what does Satan say to uproot the first chair? Because God's made you to be somebody, and he will use language, and he will be um, tricky and finicky in how he makes sure that you're uprooted. So it's this, for me. Looking at the first chair, uh, Satan would say, um, you are a bottom feeder. You are the sixth of six kids, and you are last for a reason. 
and you have nothing to offer anybody. And all your children will know is absence, and all your wife will know is distance. You will never be enough. What is Satan's voice for you? Uprooting the first of who you have made to be. The third chair is you, your ears. This person is supposed to be ears and receive. And, and the room of people speaks back truths of what they see and how God has made them to be as they sit in the chorus of community. So, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you receive from, from your friends who are arm in arm with you things that God really is sowing in you, how he's made you to be. And it's good because we, we have to be arm in arm in life. And then the fourth chair. The fourth chair is the voice of the Heavenly Father. The voice of the Heavenly Father looks at the first chair. And every time this, this um, exercise is done, the fourth chair never says, I have given you this, or you have this, or boy, how great you are at this. Every time the fourth chair is spoken into the room of people, Almost every time it talks about the fact that they in the first chair belong. And oftentimes this person who's just undressed themselves in the first two chairs and are soft and melted in a puddle, all they can muster out is, you're mine. You're mine. And we're about to talk about the, the, the fourth chair concept of the love and the Heavenly Father and the voice of the Heavenly Father, but... But for you this day, the, the insanity of fear that pulls you back into slavery, what is that voice? What are the anxious words, the things that give you rise so easily and fall so easily that Satan longs to uproot you in? And after the first service, somebody brought to my attention that sometimes it's really hard to know the difference between the voice of Satan and the voice of God, to put it plainly. And maybe a helpful litmus test is this, that the voice of Satan actually is pull, downstream effects, is pulling you away from the fact that God is wild about you and he's accomplished everything for you because you're his beloved. And it's hard to play that out in real time and have a pathology, but that's it. Fear is always drawing you away from who God has declared you to be. And God is drawing you near who you, he's declared you to be. So that's the insanity of fear. Paul knows it. That's why he says it. Don't fall back into a spirit of slavery that's induced by fear. But we see, second and lastly, we see this, the sanity of belonging. First John third, um, talks, it's, a, it's a, a book later on in the New Testament, and it says this. It says, uh, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. It goes on to say, there is no fear, there's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And we all want that to be true. We want to know love fully without marks of fear, without uh, the liability of fear. We all want that. How do we get it? And that's why there's a sanity in belonging to Jesus. Because fear begins to be quenched and extinguished and cast out actually. Because the Holy Spirit is there to tell you, you belong to Jesus. 
And just like the Christmas story or the Christmas song says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight, Jesus. And all of your hopes right now and all of your fears are met in him tonight, today. In verse 15 and on, he says this, Paul in Romans 8, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness to, with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Again, the Spirit's job is the arrow guy. He's pointing you to Jesus. He's saying what is true of Jesus is true of you. And because you are Jesus's and everything he's done for you, actually you're put in the same status as him. It's how God sees you. And he says, because you belong to him, there's these words you cry out, Abba, Father, which is to say, God has an ear for you. You cry out to him and channel everything you feel in your life to the ear that's marked out for you, Abba, Father that you are reminded who you are, that his spirit bears witness to our spirit, that we belong. Because there's a fragility that, that says you don't belong. And over and over again, the Holy Spirit never ever gets tired of communicating the truths that are true about you. You belong. He never says, why don't you get it? I've said it so many times. Get it into your skull. He says, you belong. And I never get tired of telling you that. And he tells you of this inheritance that says you are an heir of God's and a fellow heir, a co-heir with Christ, which means, like we just said, you are on the same level. You are a peer of the Son of God. That's how God looks at you if you are in Christ. And then what's amazing is that it's not this lofty religiosity. Towards the very end of the list, he says, oh yeah, provided you suffer with him. Our three-year-old daughter, Teddy. Uh, I brought the kids home one week, uh, one day this week, and was bringing them inside. It was my sister's birthday. And it's our daughter's namesake, actually. So she was, um, I hit record on the phone, put it in the back seat with the kids, and said, can you sing happy birthday to Grace? And so as we got home, parked the car, got out, grabbed our son, Fox, in my arm, and Teddy's climbed out and walking up the steps to her house and she eats it and uh, her shin finds the corner of uh, the steps and she begins to cry pick her up settle her down and as she's sitting on the counter of the kitchen uh, she she begins to say I cannot wait to tell mom about what just happened she gets it one of the greatest truths in the Bible is that you belong to Jesus. And my three-year-old daughter gets it more than I do. I can't wait to have all of my experiences in my life be connected to the fact that I belong to my mother and my father. For her, belonging frames everything she experiences. And so when it says, provided you suffer with him, he's saying, your suffering is not lost on me. But cry out to me, Abba, Father. Now, all these are, things are spiritual truths, and they are true. We have to have them. But for them to be good, and they are good, they have to say something about us. 
not you get this stuff. He has to say something of, you are this. Again, because fear is not there to take stuff away. Fear is there to orphan you, pull you away to declare something about who you are. And so love and the spirit have to do the very same thing. And they do. And here is saying these spiritual truths because it's trying to remind us, you are loved. And it's so easy to forget, you are loved. Paul says it because we forget it. That's actually what the whole story of Scripture is about. It's not a story of rules or fables. It's this whole entire cosmic story of God closing the gap on his people. And it's a love story. Because in the end, they're together. And actually, well, that's the macro version. What I would offer to you is one of the greatest stories in Scripture and the greatest love stories ever is in Luke 15. And it's the story of the parable of the prodigal son, it's called, or, or the lost son. And it's not hot and heavy in a love story. What it is, is it has these irreplaceable ingredients of what true, sacrificial, delighting love is. And if you've been in church for a long time, you've probably heard it. If you haven't, it's a beautiful story to, to discover and rediscover over and over again. And because there might be some familiarity with it, but really because there's a depth to it, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. And I'm going to read the whole thing. So let's close our eyes together. If there's sanity and belonging, and the Father declares that belonging to be true, what is this Father's voice saying to you right now? Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, this younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth there in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed for his stomach to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. And say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Celebrate. 
Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard dancing and music. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What is going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he was with him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But when he answered his father, he said, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when his, this son of yours, who had squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you killed a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You can open your eyes. We could spend all the live long day on this one. But in short, for the younger brother, what he had thought he had done was lose his father's favor and his father's belonging all because of his actions. And what does the father do? He runs to him with compassion. And notice, he never says a word to his son. He actually clothes his son with everything that is his and says to everyone else, this is what I think about my boy. And for the older brother who says, I'm trying to earn your favor. I'm trying to do all this stuff. And because of that, because I'm trying to be, a, I've, I've been a slave. I've done what, everything you've done. You've asked me to do. I've been your servant, he said. I've never gotten anything. What does the father do? His father goes out to him also. And with words, he says, everything I have is yours. And you are mine. The voice of God this very day is saying to us, I'm not here to give you stuff. I'm not here to even alleviate your pain. I'm not here to make sense of everything in your story right now. What the God of all things wants you to know right now from Romans 8 is this. You belong to him. And actually what he does so well is he runs to you, whether you're in anger like the older brother or whether you are with your head held down in shame and guilt, finding your way back to the father asking for this much, when in fact you have everything that is his is yours. As we, no matter where we are in our journey, going to Jesus, Henry Nouwen says this. He says, although claiming my true identity as a child of God, I still live as though the God to whom I'm returning demands an explanation. I still think about his love as conditional and about home as a place I'm not yet fully sure of. While walking home, I keep entertaining doubts about whether I will be truly welcome when I get there. As I look at my spiritual journey, my long, fatiguing trip home, I see how full it is of guilt about the past 
and the worries about the future. I realize my failures and know that I've lost the dignity of my sonship, but I am not yet fully able to fully believe that where my failings are great, grace is always greater. Still clinging to my sense of worthlessness, I project myself a place far below that which belongs to the Son. And if you're anything like me, I project far below a place and a worth that would be marked by a son or a daughter. What I'm here to tell you this very morning is that God does much with that. Because what he does is he speaks sanity into you. And what that sanity is marked by is saying, you are mine. And no action of trying to earn my approval or no action of trying to run from me can disqualify you from that. Because the God of all things has set his heart's affection on his people. And he's done that. He's given you his spirit to make sure you know just that. Let's pray. Lord, it said of the younger brother that when he was longing to eat the food the pigs ate and was denied it, he finally came to his senses. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you bring us all this very day to our senses that we would have a hope that says, if I can just get to my dad, I think I'll be okay. And even with a low bar set, you meet us with rings and a robe and with a feast because you delight when we delight in you as our Father. We pray this not because it is easy, but because we have the spirit that you've promised us to tell us we belong and we are yours. We pray in your name. Amen. We delight in you as our Father. We pray this not because it is easy, but because we have the spirit that you've promised us to tell us we belong and we are yours. We pray in your name. Amen.